There we go. First Corinthians chapter. Oh, look, someone's bringing me a lozenge. How sweet is that? Thank you, Mom. Isn't that sweet? I love you, Joey. <laughs> My wife's going to go, who was that? She knows. Huh? Um, thank you. I don't know that I'm going to put this in my mouth. I think I'm going to talk funny if I have it. If I need it, I'll use it, but thank you. Um, okay, we're recording. Welcome to the Tuesday Night Bible Study. Those of you that are watching the recording, we just prayed. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, picking it up in verse 16. Um, the background here is this is a troubled church, very worldly church that considers worldly wisdom more valuable than godly wisdom. They were planted by the, the Apostle Paul, founded this church, preached the gospel, many got saved. Since then, it's been four years, the church has grown in numbers, but not grown spiritually. They're still very worldly. This is a letter correcting that church on a number of problems. Um, by the way, if you're here and you need a Bible, there's some back on the table back there. So in chapter 3, um, he's talking about build, an analogy with building on uh, the person of Jesus Christ, if you will, and what we use to build on the foundation of the apostles can be wood, hay, and stubble, meaning stuff that's worldly and doesn't really relate to the gospel, or gold, silver, precious stones. He talks about that, and that's a better uh, building material, if you will. In any case, let's see where we are. Uh, should we read a little before verse uh, 16 is where we're going to pick it up. Um, no, I think we can just jump into verse 16. Uh, this relates to another verse, but we'll get to that in a second. So I know that those of you here in this room are awake. Say amen. amen. Wow, a lot of awake people. Okay, and those of you on Zoom, are you awake? Oh, they're handing out, holding up amen signs. I love it. Okay, verse 16, chapter 3, 1 Corinthians. Don't you know that you yourselves are, the, are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst or in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, verse 17, God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. Now the you in this verse is plural. If you come from the South, they, have, they say down there, y'all. It means you all, it's plural. In Spanish, it's ustedes is plural. Usted is singular, one you versus all of you. This is all of you. There is a verse in chapter six that says you each individual Christian are, your body is, the temple of the Holy Spirit. So we have to talk about what's a temple, because most of us don't go to a temple or didn't ever go to a temple. Um, and we also have to ask, what is he saying here? So look at the verse again, 16. Um, whoops, wrong page. Verse 16. Don't you know that you yourselves collectively, he's saying to the Corinthian church, are the temple? Let's talk about God's temple. What does that mean? Old Testament, the Jews would come to the temple to do what? Worship God, experience God. They called the temple God's house, if you will, okay? But even God himself says, I'm God. I don't live in houses made by men as if he needs a shelter. And he lives there to the exclusion of down the street or a block away or a hundred miles away. 
The point is, by the time Jesus, well, let's, let's finish the temple discussion. A temple is also a place where you pray. For the Jews, it was a temple of, a place of sacrifices were made, right? Yes, they would come to hear the word of God, much like we do in church, but there was a lot that went on in a temple. Boil it all down and say, a temple is an intersection between the, horiz- the vertical God, the spiritual, and the horizontal human beings. It's a place where the horizontal meets the vertical, where man meets God. Got the picture? Now, this is astounding because, because Jesus can die on the cross and pay for the sins of all who believe, those people now have been cleansed and forgiven. Now the Holy Spirit can enter them. If you are a believer, Romans and 1 Corinthians both say, Every believer has the Holy Spirit living in them. No exception. There's no such thing as she's a believer, but she doesn't have the Holy Spirit. Impossible. The Holy Spirit comes to live inside of every single believer. This is an astounding thing, and it coincided within 40 years of Jesus dying on the cross. You know what happened to the temple in Jerusalem, right? The Romans sacked Jerusalem, tore, burned the temple, and tore it down stone by stone, just like Jesus predicts in Matthew 24 hasn't been rebuilt since almost 2,000 years. Why? It's no longer needed. The astounding thing is for you and me, we don't have to go anywhere to meet the living God. We're walking around in a body that is the temple, the dwelling place of God himself, the Holy Spirit which means you can worship in a 7-Eleven store or at the top of a mountain or waiting in line at Disneyland or wherever, in your home, anywhere you are, in the middle of the night. But we are commanded, aren't we? Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, Hebrews says. Meaning what? You should come together in a church, in some kind of a group, whether it's a home church or a regular church, whatever it is. But he's saying to them, consider your conduct. Don't you remember that you your church, Corinthians, verse 16, is supposed to be God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst. Keep your finger there. Go over to 1 Corinthians 6 with me just for a second, and I sure hope I remember which verse this is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's verse 19. Look at verse 18. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18. Flee sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body, 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 body. And then here it comes, verse 19. Do you not know, don't you know, that your body is a temple? Now it's singular. You, personally, every single Christian, you have to think before you sin. Here, here is this body God has given me. With the Holy Spirit now dwelling inside of it, do I want to use it for sin? Verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? And here it comes, you are not your own, you were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body, both the physical body that you and I have, in which we do things, think things, say things, the three areas where we can sin, right? Think, thought, thoughts, words, and deeds. But in a corporate setting, a, a, a group of believers is a church, and there dwells the Holy Spirit as well. The church has to conduct itself a certain way is his point uh, in all of that. Um, let's see. So all those things that people came to do, we still do in church, 
except we don't sacrifice animals, there's no need. The blood of Christ is the final sacrifice, once for all, Hebrews calls it. Um, let's see. It's interesting, in Matthew 12, 6, there's an announcement that Jesus makes. And he says about himself, because they're talking about the temple, and I won't turn there, but Matthew 12, Jesus says, something greater than the temple is here. This is a third category. We've talked about the church as the temple of God now, talked about the, the actual temple in Jerusalem, which is no more. We've talked about individual bodies as temples. The fourth category, actually, is Jesus Christ himself. When he was here on the earth, Jesus Christ was literally God in a man's body. Okay? But it's interesting, in John 14, he says to the disciples who are bummed out, he's just announced, I'm leaving. I'm going to be crucified. I'll rise on the third day. I'm out of here, basically. They're very bummed out. And he says, "If it's to your benefit that I go away. And they're thinking, God on earth with us, what could be better than that? The problem is he's a human being as well as God, which means what? He's localized. If he's in Capernaum, he can't be in Houston or Tokyo, but he can now, right? The Holy Spirit is everywhere, but he had to pay for the sins of the world first. He says, if I don't go away, the Holy Spirit won't come. But if I go away to the Father, displaying myself as the sacrifice for sin, then those who have believed receive the Holy Spirit. It's much better this way. And yet, am I wrong? We long for the day when he returns. Amen. Okay, uh, let's see. In, the, in that culture, if you defiled a temple, it was the death penalty, not something to mess with. He's getting to that. In 16, he says, you're the God's temple. The Spirit dwells in your midst. Look at 17. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred, holy. And you together are that temple. A beautiful thought. Um, he's talking about just defiling the, the temple of God, meaning the church. There are those who seek to destroy the church of God. In this church, they're dealing with, he dealt with it in chapter one, he's going to deal with it again in a minute, division, right? Paul planted the church. It's the gospel. Apollos a much more eloquent speaker with probably spoke with a British accent, not really, but you know what I mean, just a better speaker than Paul, comes in and teaches, and then there's starting to be divisions. Well, I'm of Paul. Well, I'm of Apollos. Well, I'm of Peter, the apostle. And there's little cliques, and they're each feeling superior to the other one. Satan loves to divide and conquer. So he's really pushing unity here. Um, What's coming is a bunch of church discipline uh, in the rest of the text you'll see shortly. Um, okay, verse 18 is sort of a summary of what he's talked about so far. Um, so, oh, how could you defile the temple? How could you destroy God's temple? False teaching, and they are in entertaining some false teachers. You're going to see in chapter 5, this church is turning a blind eye to some blatant sin right under their noses, and they don't want us, nobody wants to say anything. This church has a whole problem with pride, with worldliness, we already said, with the world's wisdom being superior to Paul. Greeks look down upon any 
manual labor. That's something you hire people for. So Paul is a tent maker by trade. He's, yes, he was a Pharisee. He does the tent making, leather and other goods, just to support himself so he doesn't have to go planning churches and asking, give, could you give me some money? Could you give a donation? He could do that, but he's trying not to. They look down on Paul. What's going to follow shortly is a long self-defense of Paul showing them, you should not be looking down on me. Yes, I'm humble. Yes, I've been beaten up, shipwrecked, arrested, um, and persecuted but that doesn't mean I'm not doing God's will. That's, I'm giving you a little foretaste of where we're headed. Verse 18, do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age or world, you should become fools. He's being sarcastic here, so that you may become wise. Okay, you say, wait, that seems like double talk. They consider the gospel, these very educated Greek Corinthians, consider the gospel kind of lowbrow, kind of dumb, a little hard to believe. A carpenter that was unemployed, that got arrested for something he didn't do, got whipped, beaten, and killed, and couldn't stop it even though he was innocent. And now he says he's risen from the dead and he's ascended, and you believe in this guy? And it, by the way, it's only been... 30 years, 35 years when he's writing this, it's been 2,000 years, I still believe in that carpenter, don't you? But you got to admit to a philosopher, they want to hear everything by reason. They want the fancy words, Socrates, um, Aristotle, um, that's what they want. So they think they're wise and the gospel is foolish. God is here through Paul, turning it on his head saying, verse 18, don't deceive yourselves. If any of you think you're wise, got a PhD, then you should become a fool like me. In other words, you need to realize that wisdom has its place, but it has of no spiritual or eternal good zero, right? None of it is. I said in the sermon I gave Sunday that there are people that, ha that have created amazing inventions who are not believers. Are you saying they're fools? I'm saying they could be extremely smart and invent the iPhone, the computer, the telephone, whatever it may be. But so what a billion years from now when we're all in the afterlife, either in hell or in heaven, what difference does it make? I sound like Hillary Clinton, don't I? Okay, uh, sorry, some of you didn't get that. Um, you should be, you think you're wise? You should become fools, he's being sarcastic, so that you may become Truly wise is what the end should really say there, 18. That's what he really means. Verse 19, for, now he's going to say it again, the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. Verse 19, as it is written, he, that's God, Old Testament, catches the wise in their craftiness. Verse 20, and again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile, a waste. They come to nothing. Again, this is the contrast between the true wisdom of God and the wisdom of men. How many have noticed that Christianity does not have a minimum um, education requirement? If you don't have at least a high school education, you, you can't really be a Christian. If you're not at least a few years of college, maybe a college degree, 
Forget it. Christianity, the beauty of it is, first of all, it's true, but the beauty of it is that a child can understand it. A simpleton like me can understand that I'm a sinner because I know because of the conscience God gave me, I can't stop sinning, can't save myself. I need a savior because God requires Matthew 6, be ye therefore perfect. Perfect, perfect. Well, there's no way. Jesus says, good, you're starting to understand now. That's the wisdom of Christianity. The wisdom of the world says we can do it. Humanism. We don't need God. Science explains away God. Does it really? The wisdom of the world is education, money, power, fame. These things are valuable. Not in God's economy. Not at all. Right? Two weeks ago, we said that the... Um, I've been meaning to commit, complete this thought. Hopefully, I'll do it this time. The world says evolution is true. Science has proved it. Steve, the pastor of this church, said about a month ago, do you remember, that he was a Christian. And then he heard in school evolution proves that God, that, that we don't need God. The, the world just happened. And he lost faith for a little while from that. Evolution says that once upon a time, there was some. All there was was matter so condensed it was the size of an egg. And it exploded, the Big Bang, right? Now, this is ridiculous for a number of reasons. Who made the egg? Who lit the fuse? And when have you seen an explosion that causes complete order? Planets spinning in predictable orbits around suns with moons spinning around the planet. Are you kidding? Look at the earth. Look at the leaves on the trees. And there's so much order here. It's clearly designed. What I had said two weeks ago, by the way, I get home a lot of times after Bible study and I, I realize, oh, forgot to say this, forgot to say that. And then I always go, well, you didn't want me to say it. You used my mental floss to uh, not say certain things. What I said then was that the reason they postulated, scientists did, worldly wisdom, the Big Bang is that with the better telescopes that we have now that can look way out into the cosmos beyond our galaxy, they've seen that space is slowly expanding. And the theory is, well, if you could rewind the tape, it must have exploded at once and it's all spreading out. What I forgot to say is, it says it in several places, Isaiah is one. He, God, listen to this, stretches out the heavens like a curtain. Wait, was that Charles Darwin? No, that was, you know, 1500 years before Darwin was a baby, God knew he, God, stretches out the heavens like a curtain. It's beautiful. The Bible says God hangs the earth on nothing. A concept that didn't come to men's minds for centuries later, right? Okay. In Hinduism, by the way, the earth sits on the back of a giant turtle in a sea of milk. <laughs> Sounds scientific to me, no? Um, maybe lactose-free milk for some people. Anyway. The wisdom, verse 19, of the world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, and these are Old Testament quotes, verse 19 uh, quotes Job 5.13. Uh, 
hold on, I need to read that afterwards. Okay, um, he catches the wise in their craftiness. Again, he's using wise in an ironic sense. They think of themselves as being wise. They're actually fools. In fact, in Romans chapter one, it says, considering themselves unbelievers, atheists, to be wise, they became utter fools. When that happens, there's a progression of sin that occurs from bad to worse to worse to worser. And yes, worser is a word. Look it up. Okay, it is now. He catches the wise in their craftiness, verse 20. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. Um, let's see. Yeah, we already talked about what the world values. Ath ath famous athletes, famous actors, um, the ultra-rich. Remember, it was at the 80s or the 70s, there was a program with Robin Leach, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, and they would just see, show people with just opulent riches and mansions, and it was just sort of an, a, a worship of wealth. It was kind of ridiculous. And God's in heaven going, it's all going to burn. Uh, in any case... Uh, he's about to list a bunch of things that are ours. And it's called a merism, which is one extreme to the other. I'll show you in a second. Um, so the thoughts of the wise are futile. Futile means worthless. They come to nothing, a waste of time. Verse 21. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Peter. I, don't put your faith in any human leader. Don't look down on others that aren't in your little clique that you follow a certain preacher. Keep your eyes on Christ. Amen. No more boasting about human leaders. And here it comes. All things are yours. Did you see that? You say, well, that's sort of, he's kidding in a way, right? Isn't this kind of a, an exaggeration? Listen, God sees things in the the panoply of all time, eternity. Keep that in mind. Not today when you have bills to pay and you don't have perfect health in your body and your knees hurt or whatever. Listen, all things are yours. He's going to expound on that now. Verse 22, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, those are, Cephas is Peter, by the way, the apostle. That's, that's where they had divided, remember? He's saying all of those are yours or the world or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours. Listen to the progression, verse 23, and you are of Christ, or you are Christ's, is literally how it reads, and Christ is of God. You say, yeah, well, I still have pain, I still have bills to pay, so explain that. Okay, here goes. Whose child are you? And I don't mean your earthly parents. You're a child of God, aren't you? A daughter of God, a son of God. Only two genders, sorry. Anyway, daughter of God, son of God. How much does God own? He owns everything. I've got news for you. Even though you've got the deed to your house and the, blue, the pink, slip, pink slip of your car, he owns those things too. And your bank account and your health and your body. He owns it all. We are co-inheritors with Jesus Christ of everything. So you, you say, yeah, but he's speaking in the future, isn't he? Yes, but he's using present tense verbs, isn't he? All things 
verse 21, will be yours. They're already yours. All things are yours. Paul, Apollos, Cephas, the world. We inherit the world. We will reign with Christ. Remember the study in Revelation, the last one we did? Uh, in the millennium, we reign with Christ. Uh, life, definitely ours. We are more alive than unbelievers. We are alive physically, so are they. We're alive spiritually, so aren't they. Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's why we have to be born again. Dead in our trespasses and sins, now we are alive. What else is ours, Paul? Life or death. You say, well, what about that? We have present tense. That's the way the Bible words it, eternal life. Don't think of your Christianity as, I believe now, someday I'll have eternal life. I got news for you. Your eternal life started the moment you believed Jesus Christ was the Son of God and was made him your Lord and your Savior. It's ongoing from that, whenever it was, September 3rd, 1998, whenever it was for each person, from then on, you've had eternal life. You say, yes, but I'm going to have another number besides my date of birth. There's going to be my date of death. Yes, on your deaths, uh, on your, um, uh, on the cemetery stone, but to pass from this world to the next is not death for a believer. It's a glorious graduation. You already have eternal life. Uh, so life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. He's trying to get them to see, just like in Ephesians, look at what you have, now act accordingly. Act as grateful as you ought to be since all those things are yours in Christ. You are of Christ, you're Christ's. He's yours. What did we just read in chapter six? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. Your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. All of your human life, okay? The average lifespan in the U.S. in the last years, last few years has gone down two or three years. Have you heard that? I'm not trying to bum you out or anything. Listen, let's say you live 98 years, which is a really long human life, isn't it? I have an aunt in upstate New York, who's 104, um, February 17th, she'll be 104. It's crazy, right? Um, my dad's sister. Anyway, even if you live to be 104, in heaven, looking back, those 104 years, which is a long lifespan, you have to admit, will seem like five seconds in the second grade. Remember in the second grade, that third day? No, you don't, because it was like this, right? Eternity awaits us because of Jesus Christ. We have all things because of him. And we're Christ's and Christ is of God. Let's move on to chapter four. Are you still awake? Say amen. Yeah. That's pretty good. On Zoom, are you awake? Oh, I see my friends in Vanuatu watching. Love you, brothers and sisters. Okay, chapter four. Now this is where Paul's gonna start defending himself and the other apostles. And he's gonna draw an analogy about being a servant and an under rower, we're gonna talk about, type of servant in a ship, versus those that are on the deck of the ship living it up. Who's really doing God's will? Um, as I said, they have a very bad attitude about Paul. Some people take the other extreme, and instead of having a, looking down on Paul, there are those that were trying to worship the apostles. 
So this chapter is about a healthy, balanced opinion about the apostles. They're to be honored. They're the ones, Ephesians 2.20 says, our faith is built on the teaching of the apostles, which comes from Christ. Let's dive in. Chapter 4, verse 1. This then is how you ought to regard us. He's talking about the apostles themselves, including him. As servants of Christ and of those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Okay, so again, a proper attitude about the apostles. Not too high, not too low. Servants, hyperitas in Greek. It's not the usual word. The usual word for servant is doulos. That's the kind of slave that was sold and bought and sold by somebody, and they owned them, and they, they were property is all they were. Paul usually calls himself that, a doulos, D-O-U-L-O-S, of the Lord Jesus Christ. He bought me. I'm his. I'll do whatever he wants. This is a different word. It's still a servant, but it's a little different. In a ship, there's people upstairs, you know, on the decks having a great time. In those days, you didn't turn the key and the engine starts and, and then there it goes. You know what the engine was? A bunch of hyperitas, slaves who were called under rowers under the ship. They're rowing in unison. It's a picture of the apostles rowing that ship of the gospel, making progress, but there's, they are out of sight, looked down upon, and yet if you're on the ship, you really ought to think, you know, I'm thankful for those dudes, otherwise we'd be just sitting here, right? Because I'm not rowing, I'm a wealthy guy. And Okay, so a subordinate servant um, an under rower. It's not prestigious, but they serve a master pilot, which is Jesus Christ. That's the analogy he's making. Forwarding the ship toward heaven, one little bit at a time. Uh, Hyperitas, uh, Hyperitas asks no questions. He does whatever he's appointed to do with no uh, hesitation. He reports only to the one over him. Nobody else calls the shots for that hyperitas, for that under rower, that servant. That's the word that he uses. Now, he's going to use a new word in a second. Um, that's regard us as servants of Christ and those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. How many have in that verse the word stewards? Do you have stewards in that verse? Yeah, most of you do. New American Standard does. I think ESV does as well. Okay, what's a steward? A steward, you don't, we don't have that term that much here. A steward is someone that takes care of the estate of somebody else. A very wealthy guy, he's got a ranch, he's got uh, vineyards, he's got two houses, he's got all kinds of stuff. There's somebody under him who owns nothing, but he takes care of all of the affairs of that estate, okay? You say, well, that's different for me. I own things. Yes, yeah, so do I. But really, we are stewards of what we own. That's not what he's talking about here, um, uh, material stuff. He's talking about being stewards of those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now, that sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? Mysteries God has revealed. You say, well, if they're mysteries, nobody knows. What do you mean mysteries God has revealed? Mysterion in Greek, a mystery in the New Testament is something that is true, 
and was hidden in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, it's revealed, okay? We Christians understand some things that the Jews didn't. They had a hazy view of who the Messiah was and what he would do. They had a hazy view of how the Holy Spirit worked. Old Testament, the Holy Spirit is generally, we said last week or the week before, Holy Spirit is generally, you read about it when, and the Holy the Spirit came upon Jeremiah and he prophesied. Ezekiel, Isaiah, one of the prophets, Hosea, then they prophesy. New Testament, it's astounding that we're not prophets, really. Here's a bunch, a room full of people and people on Zoom that have the Holy Spirit living inside of them. So it's a mysterion. It's a mystery that has now been revealed, a, a grace of God as, as well, you might say. That's how to regard them. People that have, they're stewards of the mysteries God has revealed. They got to manage those mysteries and um, explain them and teach them accurately. Verse 2, now it is required that those who have been given a trust or be a, being a steward must prove faithful. It's the picture again is of a guy with a huge estate and he has Ken there appointed as his steward of his estate. Ken should better be an honest, faithful steward, not pocketing money, not selling the boat without telling the owner, right? In the same way, we, the apostles, he's saying, we have to be, it's required of us that we prove totally faithful. Not only in the way they live their lives, but in the way they um, explain the truths of God. They can't, they're not allowed to water it down. They're to teach it the way God, the Spirit, and Jesus, when he was on earth, taught them without compromise, without adding to it or subtracting from it. Verse 3. It's a weird verse, I admit. Sounds a little arrogant. It's not. Verse 3, I care very little if I am judged by you or any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Okay, now, if you come up to me and say, Joe, you know, no offense, but I, I feel like you're sinning in this area. And I say, well, I'm just going to quote verse three to you. I care very little if I'm judged by you or any human court. See you later. That's not what's going on here. That would be arrogant for me or any of you to say it. But Paul is an apostle taught directly by Jesus via the Holy Spirit. He writes several books of the New Testament. Okay. Meanwhile, remember who they are. This is a worldly church that he planted, and they're judging him with worldly terms instead of spiritual ones or worldly criteria. He says, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Let's take that first, then we'll take the second part. I don't even judge myself. Okay, here's what's going on here. How many have heard of the court of public opinion. Whether you know it or not, we are all concerned about that. We care what people think. And there's a sense in which we ought to. Later, when he talks about speaking in tongues, and they had their services were getting way out of hand with that, Paul says at one point, don't you know that if an unbeliever comes in, they will think you are mad crazy. You better 
keep order in the church like God, because God is God of order, he says in that portion, but we're months away from that. What's your point, Joe? My point is this. We all care what people think. Some of us care, be honest, way too much, right? We care what people think so much that if I'm having dinner with these four and they're unbelievers, I might just shut up about the gospel because I don't want them to think I'm some kind of a religious nut or that I'm weird or that I'm a Jesus freak. And I don't want to make them uncomfortable with the gospel. That's a bad attitude, isn't it? We shouldn't. We know what the truth is. We have the antidote, antidote to, the, to the disease the world has. Do you know what it's called? Have you heard of HIV? Somebody's HIV positive? The world is SIN positive, right? So were we. God cured us. We have the cure. Would you keep the cure from somebody? Is that loving or is it more loving to tell them lovingly and respectfully the truth? We care so much about how people think. Now, there's such a thing as hygiene. You ought to shower once a month or so, or maybe a little more, right? But on the other hand, we spend millions to make ourselves look a little younger. And then we end up looking ridiculous sometimes, right? You ever see those people that, wow, had plastic surgery? Are you in the witness protection program there? Or Anyway, it's very important that we understand that the world, and listen, it's all around you. In every advertisement on TV, there's a message about this. My, I went to San Jose State University. Um, uh, my minor was advertising. And you learn there's a list of motivators that will make people buy things. Acceptance from others, you know, attraction to the opposite sex. You can look wealthy if you drive this car. You can, if you smoke these cigarettes, you're tough. That kind of, you ride this kind of motorcycle, you're a tough man, okay? There's all those motivators. We care too much about that. There's a famous story about a girl who was a protege on the violin, and she finally got to play at Carnegie Hall. And her teacher that had spent three years teaching her was in the front row. Her parents were there, her family was there. The place was packed. She was just a little girl. And she played the violin and she played beautifully. It was astounding that a little kid could be that good on the violin. She got done with her performance, standing ovation. She went backstage, her parents went back there and there she is crying. Are those happy tears, honey? What's wrong? My teacher. What about him? He wasn't clapping. I made some mistakes. Oh, honey, nobody noticed. Everybody thought it was a great performance. Yes, I know. Standing ovation, honey. He didn't stand up. What's your point? Just this. Live your life for an audience of one. Not, what do people think of me? How do I look? The audience of one is God. If God is applauding who cares if the world is booing or doing this or ignoring you or calling you stupid? That's why Paul says, it doesn't matter to me very much that you people are judging me. Because he says in the next verse, doesn't he? The Lord is my judge. Yeah, but how do I know? By studying the word of God. 
The Bible tells you God likes this, he doesn't like that. But keep in mind, the other reason Paul says, I don't care if people judge me, is this. Paul is so smart, he knows I could fool you people, right? So could I. I know how to say certain Christian words and act like I'm all holy and nobody knows what I'm doing in the privacy of my own home. And uh, Paul knows that God sees the heart, the motive. Paul knows that God can, are you ready for this? Read your thoughts. Ouch. Imagine if you had to wear around your neck a thoughtometer that said out loud everything you were really thinking. You would like, how do you turn this thing off? Right? God hears our thoughts. It's astounding that He loves us anyway, isn't it? It is for me. I don't know about you. My thoughts aren't that good. Um, shallow. So, Paul, that's why Paul says, I care very little if I'm judged by you or any human court. Now, that doesn't mean Paul was above criticism. Somebody could come to him and say, I think that's a sin. Paul would be honest enough to say, I hear you. I didn't see it that way, but yes, it could be perceived that way. But keep reading verse four. Uh, oh, no, let's finish verse three. I do not even judge myself. Okay, that seems a little weird. Not really. Paul knows the Lord so well. He knows God's will so well. He knows the word so well. He's been writing some of it, right? That he knows when he's pleasing God and when he's not. He's not judging himself, and here's why. Because no matter who you are, do you know that you judge on a sliding scale for yourself that does not apply to anybody else? Let me give you an example. How many know what, I hope I don't step on any toes here with this, um, anorexia is. Karen Carpenter. There's a lot of people have it, okay? Anorexia is a disease where the person looks in the mirror and sees, I'm so fat. Look at that. I need to stop eating. I need to throw up everything I'm eating. I'm too fat. I'm too fat. And you and I look and go, you look pretty thin to me, Harriet or Karen or whoever, right? That's the opposite of what most people do. That's over criticism that's also inaccurate. Most of us look in the mirror, and I'm going to prove it in a second, because average age in this room is around my age. I won't say how old I am, but I'm old. Average person looks in the mirror and says, I look pretty good. I look, I look younger than I am. Do you ever do that? Of course you do. Listen. I'm going to tell you why I know you do. Have you ever had this happen? You go somewhere, and there's a bunch of people you know there, and you know how you looked that night and what you wore, and someone says, Tom. Tom's a photographer. Tom goes, hey, I took pictures that day that you were there. And you go, oh, okay. You're in these five. And you look at the first one, and you go, oh, no, I don't look that old. The camera, something wrong with your camera. You need a different lens or something. Let me show me the next one. And the next one's worse. And you even kind of look a little fatter than you thought there and a little stupider than you thought. Is that a word? Yes, it is. And definitely older. And you go, I don't need to see the rest. There's something wrong with your camera. 
No, there isn't. We grade on a curve with ourselves. That's why don't judge yourself because whatever level of sin you're comfortable with and then God isn't, you're going to go, he understands. And God's going, no, I don't. Um, so he doesn't, he doesn't care that much if they judge him. He's not even judging himself. Verse 4, but he understands this. He says, my conscience is clear. As far as I know, I don't have any blatant, ongoing, major sin problem. I've done the inventory, but that does not make me innocent. Because you know what each of us have? Blind spots, right? If alcohol is your problem, then you see the guy who lies a lot or cheats on his wife or steals at work and you say, that's a way bigger sin than alcohol. I mean, what's the harm with having an alcohol problem? Or if you never drink alcohol and you lie a little bit, you will grade on a curve and say, hey, I'm just trying not to hurt people's feelings, okay? They're white lies. You know where that comes from in the Bible? The book of Illusions, chapter four. <laughs> Look it up. It ain't in there. Let's take our two-minute break and stretch our aging bodies, and please introduce yourself to someone you don't know. Those of you on Zoom, don't go away. I'll be right back. There we go. Find your seats, those of you that are here. Welcome back to the Tuesday Night Bible Study. Let me just adjust that a little bit. There we go. All right, we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, early in the chapter. Picking it up around verse uh, 4. His conscience is clear. As far as he knows, there's nothing major that he is doing habitually as a sin, but that doesn't make him innocent, he says. He knows, Paul does, that there's a fine line between a clear conscience and a self-righteous attitude. Because that's the danger of a, of a clear conscience is, I'm better than she is or he is or whatever it may be. So, the last part of verse 4, it is the Lord who judges me. That's the audience of one. That's the teacher. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. God is not like that teacher of the little girl with the violin, where he's constantly, ooh, his, he's not doing that. He's loving. He's gracious. He has planted in you two tools. Number one, in all human beings, a conscience. Romans 2 is all about the human conscience. Tool number two for believers, the Holy Spirit. A living being, not just a tool, not a it, it's a he, it's God. A louder conscience who makes the word of God come alive, who makes you um, think twice before you sin. Who, have you experienced this? who makes you miserable after you sinned, where you used to sin and go, that was fun, I can't wait to do it again on Friday night. Now he makes you miserable, makes you feel guilty, makes you repent of it, confess it, etc. It's the Lord is my judge. Um, verse five, therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in the darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise 
from God. Judge nothing before the appointed time. He's saying, not only are you judging with worldly judging judgment, your judging judgment is skewed and wrong. He's saying you're judging way too early. The Lord is the judge, and he judges when the Lord returns. At that time, there are two judgments. We've said this in the book of Revelation over and over, right? The main judgment is in Revelation 20, the white, the great white throne judgment. You don't want to be there. That's for all unbelievers in which books are open. You can look it up in chapter 20 of Revelation. And for people that said, no, thank you, Jesus Christ, I don't need a savior. Leave me alone. I'm good enough, God. You'll accept me as I am. I know you will. They find out they're sadly mistaken. Great white throne judgment is every single human being that's ever lived before that is resurrected and judged according to what they did and said and thought that was outside the will of God. Yikes, no savior. You see, somebody pays for every single sin, everyone. It's either the person that did the sinning. I don't need Jesus. I'm, I'm good. At the great white throne, they find out they have to pay outside the presence of God and all things holy forever, hell. Why? Because they wrote their own ticket by saying, no thanks, Jesus. No thanks, Bible God. The other uh, possibility is that if you're a believer, every single sin you ever committed or will commit in the future. I had this conversation with my friend Mike in Las Vegas today. Even the future sins, we still are to repent of them, recognize their sin, to ask God for forgiveness, but those future sins are also already paid by Jesus on the cross. He suffered in your place the punishment you and I deserve. So, Judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what's hidden in darkness. Motives, the secret sins nobody knew about. There's a motivation because you can hide from me and you can hide from him and from her and from everybody else. You can't hide from God. Where can you go to hide from God? Well, maybe if there was, you know, lead in the walls, then God couldn't see through like Superman. Wrong. He can read your heart, your motives, your mind. He'll bring to light what's hidden in darkness and expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. That's the second judgment. What's that? First judgment, only for unbelievers. Great white throne judgment, Revelation 20. All sins are judged. People are condemned. Second judgment, the Bema, B-E-M-A, seat of Christ where Christians are judged. You said, wait, 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 I thought you said we weren't going to be judged for our sin. We won't. But our works, the things that we did while on the earth for the kingdom of God will be judged. That's what that verse was about, wood, hay, or stubble versus gold, silver, or precious stones. The analogy we always give is somebody does something really nice for the church. They give a $25,000 gift to the church because they know the church is hurting. It's very nice. What was your motive? Oh, I just did it for the church. I did, I, you know, that's why I did it, to help God's kingdom out. But if that person wrote the check and went around telling everybody, guess how much I gave? 
25,000. I'm very generous that way. You start to realize they did it for personal aggrandizement. Their motive wasn't pure. That's wood, hay, and stubble. That will be judged. You mean the person won't be saved? No, they'll be saved. We talked about this last week. They'll be saved, but as one escaping through the flames, that verse says, last chapter, or early this chapter, I can't remember. Um, but if somebody gave money to the church or served in some way or witnessed for Christ and didn't do it for what they'd get out of it, but they did it just purely for the kingdom of God with pure motives, there are rewards, crowns. Um, and it's all a work of God anyway. And we already have talked about that last week, so we won't beat that dead horse. But um, God's applauding. Opinions don't matter. Live your life for an audience of one. I'm turning the page here. Um, okay, let's keep rolling. Uh, verse 6. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos. That's the very eloquent speaker that took over for Paul when he had left. For your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of saying, do not go beyond what is written. Don't go beyond what's written. We'll have to talk about what that means. Um, then you will not be puffed up in being a follow of, follower of one of us over against the other. Okay, so number one, don't go beyond what's written. Meaning what? Scripture. Don't go beyond it. Old Testament, yes. Interpreted in the light of the new. Testament. Don't go beyond that. There's all kinds of social um, opinions that we get, don't we, that we might bring into the doors of the church. Okay? Example. Um, very poor people, uh, drug addicts, alcoholics, homeless people tend to dress kind of shabbily. That's generally true. So what? But here comes somebody into the church dressed shabbily. Don't look down your nose. That may be true out in society. This is a church. Do you think Jesus would say, we have a dress code here. You need to go get some. Come on. Don't go beyond what's written. And there are so many churches who go beyond what's written, even in what they teach, either by adding to it, changing it, or subtracting from it. Oh, we don't preach that because I don't want to offend anybody kind of thing. Uh, don't go beyond what's written, especially in terms of what God judges by. Uh, Tim Keller has a sermon, I've mentioned it often, um, called The Upside-Down Kingdom which is Christianity, where the world judges by, oh, here comes a guy with really expensive clothes. Oh, Mr. Vanderbilt, why don't you come and sit in row number one here? You know, and here's a guy with no shoes on and he hasn't had a shower today. Why don't you go stand in the back? It's worldly judgment. Would Jesus judge that way? I don't think so. So um, what he's saying basically is don't go beyond what's written and don't be puffed up, last part of verse 6, and being a follower of one of us over against the other. To put one leader of a Christian denomination above others 
to the point that you're following them blindly is to go beyond what's written. We tend to like the churches with that are big. You know, they have 5,000 members there. Oh, wow. 50,000 people go to that church, 11 services. Hey, that's great. Are they preaching the gospel? That's the thing, right? I'd rather go to a church where there's nine people, but it's the real gospel being preached uh, unashamedly. Um, don't follow one over against the other. Doesn't mean you can't have, I like this preacher on the radio or whatever. Um, if you live in Oakhurst, Coarse Gold, California, Central California, 99.9 FM is a really great station. Put it on and just listen all day long. There's about an hour where there's politics in there. It's still good. Most of the time it's sermon after sermon after sermon. There's one question and answer period. It's really good to fill your mind while you're working in the garage, while you're driving in the car. Uh, just don't close your eyes and pray when you're driving. Okay. We already covered that earlier, didn't we? Um, not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. Don't put your eyes on human teachers. Make it Jesus that is the one that you cover. Four, verse seven, now he's going to get a little sarcastic. For who makes you different from anyone else? Or, and the thought here is better. This is a pride problem in the church. He's going to ask them three questions. Who makes you better? Uh, New American Standard has, who regards you as superior? Because they think they're superior. They're looking down their nose at uh, other people. Who regards you as superior? Um, that's their, pre, their judging attitude presupposes that. Um, groups tend to be that way. We're the best. We're number one. Those people, uh, kind of thing. Uh, humble attitude. Be grateful. <clears throat> He's about to make a point. Um, let's see it. There it is. Question number two. Who, who regards you as superior? Question one. Question two. This is so important for Western Christians like us. What do you have that you did not receive? Can you think of anything? Well, um, my family is, you received that. You didn't choose your family. Well, um, I've worked really hard and who gave you the abilities to work and the health to be able to work and the opportunity be, to be able to work and to, the choice was made for you to be born when you were be born, not a thousand years ago when you couldn't have done any of these things probably. Yes, but I have a PhD and who gave you the mind that you have? Christianity is so humble, it sees everything as, and we're gonna look at a few scriptures in a second, a detour, coming, everything good, coming down from God. Total grateful attitude. What do you have that you did not receive? That's a humbling thing just to hear that. John the Baptist, John 3. A man can receive nothing except it be given him from above, from heaven. There's nothing that you have that you weren't given. And what does he say right after that, three verses later? I must increase. I'm sorry. He must increase Jesus. I must decrease. Got that one wrong, didn't I? Uh, 
Augustine said, there's nothing good in us except what is received from God. Keep your finger here, Old Testament, 2 Chronicles 29. You see, I don't even know where that is. Okay, then don't turn there. I'll turn there and read it for you. 2 Chronicles, way into the Old Testament, chapter 29. We're not going to be here long, but I want you to see this. And these detours keep you awake, whether you know it or not. Are you still awake? Say amen. Amen. Okay, good. Um, 2 Chronicles 29, uh, verses 11 to 16. My sons, do not be negligent now, for for the Lord has chosen you to stand before him and serve him, to minister before him and to burn incense. Oh, you know what? I think it's 1 Chronicles 29. (laughs) Good one, Joe. Two in a row. Yeah, okay. God's keeping me humble. Aren't you glad for that? Let's see if it's 1st. Yeah, it is. Sorry. 1st Chronicles. That's in the notes and it's incorrect. Okay. You guys need to find a better teacher. Okay, verse 1st Chronicles 29, verse 11. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and on earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from hard work. Is that what it says? Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. We're giving it back to you, God. We are aliens and strangers in your sight, and we are, as sorry, as were all our forefathers. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. O Lord, our God, as for all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name, it comes from your hand, and all of it belongs to you. There's nothing that you have that you weren't given. We need to be thankful for everything. Question. Do you bow your head and say a prayer of thanksgiving before every meal? Don't answer. Every meal. You mean in restaurants? Yes, in restaurants. You mean at home when I'm by myself? Yes. When I'm with unbelievers? Even more so. I've never been with unbelievers who are distraught or, or upset because let's bow our heads and pray before we eat. They're all like, okay probably like this, you know, but I'm thankful that there's food and water and stuffed and a roof over my head. Are you? Uh, I had a surgery where it was hard for me to walk. And then you walk with a walker and then with a cane and then eventually without the cane. And I, for two weeks, I lived downstairs at our two-story house because I couldn't go up the stairs. And then eventually I could go up very slow. Mary knows what I'm talking about, right, Mary? And then eventually very slowly. And then eventually one step at a big step. I'm like a little boy, like I can walk on my own. Sometimes I walk up the stairs and there's 16 stairs from the bottom floor to the top floor. And I say, thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Every single step, we ought to be thankful for everything, constantly in communication with him. Thank God when you eat. Okay. Um, Go to James, uh, the book of James. One more verse, James chapter one. Way at the other end of the Bible, about seven books from the book of Revelation. That's a rough count. 
Don't hold me to that. Mm -hmm. I'll just read it. It's easy. James chapter 1, verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Every good and perfect gift, every single thing you have that's good in your life, God gave you. Be, we ought to be the most grateful, thankful people on the planet. Amen? Amen. Okay. That's kind of a weak amen. Um, do I give God the full credit for my salvation, the changes in me, the, the gifts and abilities that I have, for the knowledge that I have, for the time that I have, the health that I have, the opportunities, the financial blessings, the family blessings, the friends? Do I live in a constant spirit of humble gratitude? I've told you this story. It's been a while now. When our kids were really little, we always tucked them into bed at night, would read them a story, pray with them. Sometimes I would make up a story and tell them a story. And then we had a time where they should pray. You know, three years old, two years old, four years old. You say something now. And uh, we had a rule. It's kind of a silly rule, but good lesson. Thank God for something every prayer. But it's got to be something different every time. So the first, thank you for mommy. Thank you for dad. Thank you for our house. You know, all those things. After a few months, it got to, thank you, God, that I have knees. I remember trying, I bit my tongue to not laugh because, but then I started thinking, you know what? I'm glad I have knees. I never thanked God I have knees. My legs bend. Do you see what I mean? There's so much to thank him for. If you have that spirit of thanksgiving in your life and you're thanking him for all these things that you're noticing around you, guess what? Your problems just got way smaller because I'll bet you, you don't have more than two or three or four problems compared to 10,000 things you can thank him for. Okay. We beat that dead horse. Let's move on. Why do you have, uh, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did not, if you did receive it, this is the end of verse seven, why do you boast as though you didn't, right? There's a conceitedness to boasting when it's a gift from God. So the pride problem is what he's talking about there. Um, verse eight, already, now he's getting sarcastic, okay? He's not serious here. He's being a little ironic, if you will. Already, you have all you want. Already, you've become rich. You've begun to reign. And that without us, meaning the apostles. Here we are suffering for the gospel, and you people are so holy over there in Corinth. You've begun to reign. You've got it all. For it seems to me, verse 9, that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like those condemned to die in the arena. We've been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. Okay, what's going on here? They think they have it all. We've got the wisdom. We've got money. We've got our church, and th they have left behind their gratitude to the apostles they're looking down on the apostle Paul, as we said. So Paul is being a little sarcastic. Oh, I wish I could be as rich as you. And there was a practice in, that, in those days. Let me find the verse again. Um, uh, verse 9. 
It, it seems to me that God has put us, that's the apostles, on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. When there was a, um, uh, in, in that culture, to keep the peace, much as they do now, Super Bowl, World Series, baseball, football, basketball, concerts, there was stuff to keep the society busy so that they could maintain order and keep people mellowed out, give them something to do on the side. There were, the, the center for this was the Roman Colosseum, but there were other places where it was done. There was the athletic games and stuff in Greece, as which was second to the Olympics. Um, and they had in the Roman Colosseum and other Colosseums, um, all these gladiator, you've seen the movie Gladiator, gladiator competitions. At the end of those, there was a procession of the people that were the dregs of society, the worst. And they're going to bring them in. Some of them are condemned to die. We'll let them fight it out with each other to the death. The worst of the worst was at the end. The worst of the worst of the worst would be on display having to fight lions, poison snakes, that kind of thing. Go back to that verse now. It seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like those condemned to die in the arena. We've been made a spectacle. That's the word for theater. We get theater from that Greek word to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. He's saying the whole universe, even the spirit world is watching. What you Corinthians think is great to live high and mighty and rich and have two Rolexes and drink expensive wine, we apostles, the ones Christ chose, are out there spreading the gospel, getting arrested, beaten up, persecuted, stoned, left for dead, shipwrecked. Do you ever see that list Paul has of all the things that happened to him? He's saying real service imitates the one we're serving. Guess who suffered? Jesus. Guess who was very humble? Jesus. Everything about his life. He's born in a very small town, Bethlehem. He lives in a despised place, uh, Nazareth. He works with his hands. He's a carpenter, right? Um, he is persecuted and hated and eventually arrested and murdered, basically, in a cruel torturous death on a cross, um, that humble lifestyle is supposed to be, we are supposed to do what? Follow him. Where did he go? He went humbly to serve others, right? Uh, he didn't come to serve himself, he says. So they're flaunting their pride, their privileges, and to Paul, the humble service, and, the, and the, he's ready to die for Christ. That's the way to live your life. Um, yeah, uh, we already talked about that. Um, they're embarrassed by Paul's weak, humble state. As I already told you, they're embarrassed because Paul does manual labor. And that's just, we look down on that here. God doesn't, right? Do you work with your hands? Good for you. Um, he's really saying, whose eyes are you seeing with? The world's eyes? Are you seeing with God's eyes? It's almost like you could put glasses on and suddenly everything looks different right? When you see it the way God sees it, the humble servant. Um, the one that, uh, if you humble yourself, you'll be exalted. It's the upside down king kingdom, right? Who does Jesus, about whom does Jesus say, be like this? Children, do you remember? 
Let the children come to me. This is the kingdom of God. Look how humble they are. There's no little two-year-old that goes, do you know who I am? They don't talk that way, right? They just, they don't have that ego. Hopefully they don't. Anyway, they need a good, if they do, right? Um, let's see, we already did verse nine. Didn't we? Yeah, we talked about that. Um, and the Colosseum was the center for that sort of thing. Verse 10, more sarcasm. Paul's laying it on pretty thick. We, the apostles, he's being facetious, sarcastic. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored. We are dishonored. That's all sarcasm, right? In God's eyes, it's the exact opposite. Verse 11, to this very hour, we, that's those who are preaching the gospel, go hungry and thirsty. We're in rags. We're brutally treated. We're homeless. We work hard with our hands. When we're cursed, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure it. When we're slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. He's telling it like it is. He's not ashamed of those things. In fact, he's almost proud of them in a good way. That the Christian life is the upside down kingdom where the humble are exalted. The servants become the ones who rule. Um, yeah, uh, well, we'll talk about that later. Um, spiritually wise people always look like fools in the eyes of the Lord. Remember that. Remember that if Paul had remained a Jewish rabbi, he could have had a cushy Pharisee life that would have ended in hell, judgment, no Jesus. He chose this life, not really. God chose him, if you will. Um, so for what does this mean for you and I? I think it means this. In the West, in the United States of America, I've said this to you before, I don't have the number with me, um, but by worldly standards, everyone in this room is extremely wealthy. Everyone. Do you understand that? A third of the world is not sure what, if anything, they're going to eat or drink tomorrow. You have that problem? Do I? By world standards, I believe, gosh, I wish I could remember it. I think it was $2,300 a year is the average worldly wage. Not much, is it? So we ought to be thankful. We ought to be generous. We ought to hold what God has given us with an open hand so that he can take out or put in whatever he wants. But this is a gospel that is um, built on the imitation of the, of the Christ, Jesus, who suffered, who was humble, who died for others. He gave his life, didn't he? Um, let's see. So that's the sarcasm, verse 10. And being hungry and thirsty, he means that literally at times. Um, uh and, and notice that when they're cursed, they bless. When they're persecuted, they endure it. They answer kindly. They've become the garbage of this world. The humility is astounding there. Now, 
in the remaining time, let me step on a few toes here and name a few names because, you know, Paul named names of false teachers. Okay. There is, you say, no, we get it, Joe, poor, humble, deprived, and, you know, we need to be um, not materialistic. We need to be thankful. There's a movement still around, been around about 35, 40 years, maybe a little more, called the name it and claim it movement, movement, the positive confession movement, the faith movement, and it's anything but faith. Okay, these are teachers, most of them with multi-million dollar ministries, who teach the following, John Hagee, poverty is caused by sin and disobeying the word of God. Poverty is a curse. John Avanzini, Jesus had a nice house, a big house. He was handling big money. He wore designer clothes. Joel Osteen, if you're struggling financially, you have not got the victory. God didn't create you to be average or poor. Anyone can create by faith and words the dreams he desires, health, wealth, happiness, success. Just say it. Marilyn Hickey has a sermon where she has everybody take their wallet or their purse out and speak to their wallet. You're so full of money, I can't even hold you. Your checkbook, you've got so much money in there. Because you can say and make things happen. You know, you know who can do that? God. Let there be light. Go ahead, try it. When the lights go out, say, you know, PG&E goes off, let there be light. And it didn't work. Get the, get the candles, honey, and the flashlight. Benny Hinn, poverty is from the devil, and God wants all Christians to be prosperous. Joyce Meyer, if you stay in your faith, you're going to get paid. I'm living now in my reward. Words are containers for power. They carry either creative or destructive power. Make your checks payable to Joyce Myers Ministry, and million is spelled M-I-L-L-I-O-N. There's ministries on TV that say, you know, we're having a fundraiser for the ministry, and if you give a thousand, Jeff and Doreen, God will give you back a hundredfold, a hundred thousand. If you give $10, he'll give you a hundredfold. He'll give you 10 times a hundred, a thousand dollars. The bigger your gift, the bigger your blessing. Makes no sense. You know why? Because why doesn't that guy just mortgage his house and give his ministry everything and watch it a thousand times more and then do it again? And no, he needs your money. Anyway, it's a heresy. There's no humility. Um, they do the same things. I didn't bring quotes for this, but they do the same things with physical, believe it or not, um, physical uh, sickness is a curse, and um, having any kind of a disease is a curse. And the Holy Spirit doesn't want to live in your body, John, M John I think it's John Avanzini says, um, when you're sick. So you need to say, I'm well. But the truth is, Every human being dies of their last disease or accident, right? Every single one. No, I'm not dying. I'm healthy. I'm strong. I'm wealthy and <clears throat> right? We need to be humble. We need to be thankful for what we have. We need to be generous. 
with what we have because we're giving back to God when we do so. Um, look at the humility of the gospel Paul preaches here. Verse 14. I'm not writing, I am writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. There's a, he's stopping with the sarcasm now. He planted this church. He's the one that got most of them to believe. Of course, it was the Holy Spirit. Yes, I know. But it was his preaching. Now he's been away four years, and they just don't think that much of him anymore. I'm not saying this to shame you, but to warn you. Even if you had, verse 15, 10,000 guardians in Christ, meaning all these different teachers that they like, and how many can you follow, he's saying. You did not have many fathers, for in Jesus Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. He's reminding them, right? If Paul seems like he's self-centered, he's not. He's trying to establish his authority so they will listen to his warnings because they're really getting off base and veering way more off base. Um, let's see, verse 16. Therefore, and here's something I would never say, I urge you to imitate me. Now elsewhere, he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. They're thinking, imitate you, beaten up, hungry, poor, thirsty, homeless, persecuted. Doesn't sound that attractive. He's saying, you got to let go of that. Be willing to suffer. Not that every Christian has to suffer in the same way, but be willing to do so um, for the gospel's sake. Why? So I can earn my salvation? No, because the master that you serve did suffer that way for you, right? Took your punishment. You owe him, I owe him everything. All right, we're going to close with prayer. Some of you are sleeping, and that's a good thing. We all need sleep. Not really. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time we could be in your word, and we recognize that we have a streak of materialism, God, and a streak of judgmentalism, and a streak of grading on a curve when it comes to our own sin, but not others. We have a little streak of sort of um, elevating some teachers over others and sort of idolizing them. And God, we just want to focus on you. What is it that we have that we weren't given, God? The answer is nothing. Every single thing we have, we've been given. So make us grateful, Father. I pray that you would give us a heart for serving other people. And if we suffer for the gospel, may we, instead of complaining, rejoice that we're counted worthy like uh, Peter does in the book of Acts. Bless these truths to our hearts and minds, God. May they change the way we live. Thank you for this time, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Those of you that are here, make sure you say hello to someone you don't know. They're across the room and they're waiting. Those of you on Zoom, thank you for being here. God bless.